0: We are our countrymen. As of the 21st of uh, this month, I signed proclamation number 1081, placing the entire Philippines under martial law. Baguio City, Philippines, 1971. <laughs> Aside from daily medical routines and general care, the Baguio City General Hospital, situated on the island of Luzon, hadn't seen much action since World War II. The hospital had been founded by an American coalition in 1902 as a sanitarium, and then handed over to the Filipino government in the 20s. During the Japanese occupation, the forces of the empire took over BCG as a place to care for their war wounded, ...before it was completely burnt to the ground in an artillery raid in 1946. By 1948, the hospital had been reconstructed, and operations proceeded at a normal pace. On the afternoon of January 24, 1971, a small team of men appeared on the hospital grounds... ...with heavy digging equipment and protective gear. But this was not a construction crew. Their leader was a local locksmith and amateur coin collector named Rogelio Rojas and in his hands was a permit, granted to him by local judge Pio Marcos, authorizing Rojas and his hired help to dig on the hospital lands. The staff were not about to turn him away. Judge Marcos was the brother of the country's president, though as history shows, dictator might be the more preferred title ascribed to Ferdinand Marcos, who oversaw numerous human rights abuses to consolidate his power. In any case, since Rojas had been granted clearance, and the dig site wasn't going to cause any obstruction to routine affairs, Rojas and his crew set to work on uncovering an old, buried tunnel that had been covered up by Japanese soldiers. And it was one of their descendants who had led Rogelio to this curious place and time. A fellow adventurer and close friend of Rojas, Albert Fuchigami had inherited a map from his father, an officer in the Japanese army. It was a map that showed a series of complex tunnel systems, which had been hastily buried during the final days of the occupation. And if this map was the real deal, then Rojas and Fujigami both believed that it might, in fact, lead to the most infamous treasure in Filipino history. These makeshift barracks had been relatively common during the war, and used to conceal both men and weaponry alike. It was discovered, upon unsealing the 30-year-old tunnel, that the Japanese forces had left in a hurry when the Allies had begun their bombing run. Inside, Rojas and his team discovered munitions, samurai swords, and, supposedly, the uniform-clad skeletons of those who had been abandoned to their grim fate. These unfortunate souls had either been men who were wounded and left behind, or perhaps deliberately sealed inside to protect something important. At the end of the tunnel, Rojas uncovered a slab of concrete embedded in the floor. Suspicious, he broke through the ceiling to discover an entire sealed chamber. Inside that hidden room, Rojas found something special, truly legendary, and potentially worth millions. We have only Rojas's testimony to go on, but if we're to take him at his word, Then what Rojas and his men uncovered at the end of their 10-day investigation, was several crates stacked high with gold bullion, enough to make all who bore witness very, very, very rich men. But that wasn't all they found, and what Rojas hauled up from the cave that day would go on to bring him more misfortune rather than glory. He and his men used a system of pulleys and ties to haul a priceless artifact out from the shaft, it was heavy lifting as this object weighed a ton by rojas's estimate the team decided upon some old school ingenuity and placed the object on a series of logs which if we were to take all of this at face value they rolled from the hospital site all the way to rojas's house whereby he hid the artifact inside his well his closet presumably right there next to the halloween decorations and an unused fondue pot along with the one-ton treasure Rojas had removed 24 of the gold bars from the secret tunnel. Rojilio was an enterprising individual, and he knew that he wasn't going to get anywhere just sitting around eating Jollibee when there was a literal ton of gold at his fingertips. He was acutely aware that he was in dire need of more advanced equipment, more advanced than a pile of logs anyway, to excavate the rest of the loot. So he financed this by selling seven of the bars to other unnamed individuals, To this day, nobody is quite sure how these sordid transactions played out, but hey, it was the Philippines and the Marcos regime. It was kind of a weird time for everybody. And weird is kind of the major thread running through this episode. Three months went by, Rojas found that, while the gold bars had netted him a fair amount of cash, that heavy, extremely valuable thing in his closet would bankroll his gold excavating expedition a thousand times over. He fielded several candidates to purchase the goods, and finally settled on a gentleman named Joe Oyahara, who gave Rojas a down payment and promised to come back with the resources needed to take the heavy artifact out of the house. That artifact, if I've kept you in suspense long enough, was a solid gold Buddha resting in the lotus position, measuring three feet tall. Buddhas are no strange sight in the South Pacific, but one made out of solid gold Well, that's another story. But Rojas had noted something very strange about the gentleman's demeanor as the potential buyer had been focused particularly on the Buddha's neck during his examination. So Rojas and his brother found a seam at the base of the statue's neck and used a block of wood to unseal it. If Rojas thought he was rich before, then what he found inside the hollow Buddha might have made him perhaps the wealthiest man on earth. There was a good reason why the statue was so heavy. It was filled to the brim with uncut diamonds. Immediately, Rogelio and his brother started to worry. They felt like they were in over their heads. Since there wasn't much in the way of security at their disposal, Rojas hid the Buddha back inside his closet and stuffed the diamonds in a bag. His brother then took a picture of him with the Buddha as photographic evidence of this incredible discovery. Yes, photo proof as you can go online right now and actually look the photo up as wild as this story already is it only gets weirder it goes without saying that news of the buddha got out into the wild and attracted some very unwanted attention from some very bad powerful people the saga of the golden buddha would culminate in perhaps one of the strangest court cases in both american and filipino history But even this is a fraction of the whole narrative behind the Philippines' most notorious treasure, a scattered cache of valuables known by fortune seekers and adventurers the world over as Yamashita's Gold. In early December of 1941, the Japanese Imperial Army invaded the Philippines as part of their expansion into the South Pacific. At the time, the Philippines were partially colonized by the Americans, who had joined forces with the Filipino Army. Though their troops outnumbered the Japanese three to one, they were mostly combat inexperienced and, and were overwhelmed by the Japanese assault. Despite General Douglas MacArthur's best efforts, the Japanese defeated the American and Filipino forces and occupied the island, starting with Luzon for the remainder of World War II. The Japanese used the Philippines as a strategic middle ground in which they could help transport their plunder from the countries that fell during their campaign. These included Indonesia, Burma, parts of China, and Malaya, among others. Leading this swift and brutal invasion was General Tomoyuki Yamashita, A man so feared that even the likes of Winston Churchill could scarcely recall an enemy more formidable. His reputation earned him the nicknames the Tiger of Malaya and the Beast of Bataan. Yamashita presided over the occupation of the Philippines and is attributed to most of the war crimes that occurred during that period. But long story short, and in a twist of irony, he eventually ended up surrendering to his own former prisoners, two British generals named Jonathan Wainwright and Arthur Percival, who he had once captured in Singapore. Yamashita's trial remains controversial in that he was charged for all the war crimes committed by his subordinates, mostly for failing to stop them. But Yamashita swore that he didn't know the full extent of his troops' crimes and would have never sanctioned them in the first place as he fancied himself one of those traditional honor-among-enemies types of old Japanese combat philosophers. And it is documented that Yamashita's orders to his platoons were quite clear. No looting, no rape, no arson. He even ordered the execution of anybody who broke these rules. But nevertheless, there were still many atrocities, including attacks on hospitals, committed by his men. He was sentenced to death by hanging and was executed on February 23rd, 1946. When asked why he had overseen such brutalities, Yamashita allegedly claimed it was all for science. So you may be wondering, if this treasure is called Yamashita's gold, why didn't I mention it in the literally the last five paragraphs about this terrible person? Well, that's because nowhere in history did he ever come out and say, Hey, my name's Yamashita, and all this is my gold. The name for this dubious treasure comes from a lot of secondhand accounts. Not so much historical, and more akin to those newspaper clippings and red threads you see on the whiteboard in any given detective movie. Yes, Yamashita oversaw a lot of military activity in the Philippines, and no doubt this involved the acquisition and movement of plundered assets from across the South Pacific. But unlike, say, the Nazi war gold, it's hard to document how much treasure was amassed on the archipelago. For one, a good chunk of it was lost during the Allied raids on the Pacific, sinking transport vessels going to and from Japan. So most of the Imperial assets were stuck on the Philippines, which was quickly slipping into enemy hands. Besides that, the origins of Yamashita's gold are hard to pin down, as it's just one of those urban legends that are so widely passed around that it becomes difficult to cite any particular source. The tales all seem to coalesce around there being a hoard of treasure spread out among over 175 possible locations throughout the country of the Philippines. It's actually not until the 2000s that anybody put forth a potential catalyst for the true quote-unquote origin of Yamashita's gold. And it begins, like all juicy conspiracy theories, with a secret organization led by the highest orders of the Japanese imperial dynasty. This clandestine group was called the Golden Lily. Two of the most prominent Yamashita's gold theorists are the husband and wife duo of Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, authors of The Yamato Dynasty, The Secret History of Japan's Imperial Family, and Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold. Unfortunately... Various historians and authors have come forward with accusations that the Seagrave's findings are, to put it kindly, dubious at best and deliberately misleading at worst. But who am I to judge? The main theory that they put forth is not unlike the ostensibly true Operation Werewolf of Nazi gold fame, but on the Japanese side of the Axis efforts. The story goes that Emperor Hirohito put his brother Yasuhito Chichibu in charge of organizing a secret society devoted to bankrolling the Japanese army, even though there's usually people like war treasurers for that sort of thing. The Golden Lily supposedly conscripted even the likes of the Yakuza to help amass its wealth, and General Yamashita was entrusted with delivering the goods, which were brought over to the Philippines from Singapore during his conquest of Malaya. Of course, it helps cloud the truth when, according to the Seagraves, anybody with knowledge of where the loot was buried was either killed off to ensure secrecy, or captured and executed by the allies. Very convenient. So what does Yamashita's gold really entail? Aside from the obvious, various accounts say the trove as a collective contains jewels, artwork, or other religious artifacts, most likely from raids of Buddhist temples. And as I mentioned above, the reason why none of this ever made it back to Japan was because the Allies were bombing the heck out of any boats or transport vessels going to and from the Philippines. So it was better to just bury the treasure all over the place and hope nobody ever found it. Which turns out sort of worked. Because despite thousands of treasure hunters and adventurers going in search of that fabled hoard, nobody has found a trace of the so-called Yamashita's gold in the last 70 years. Case closed, right? Not quite. Because when Rogelio Rojas found the Golden Buddha, everyone sort of stopped what they were doing and were like, oh, I guess this was real after all? But ah, not so fast. Because of all the treasures I've discussed here on Relic, the case of Yamashita's Gold has the most twists and turns by any other episode. And quite honest, I'm still not entirely sure if this is all just a really great urban legend from World War II. Or something that has credibility. Then again, the court of the state of Hawaii doesn't usually try cases based on superstition and folklore without some damn solid evidence. Oh yes, that's right, the Ninth Circuit got involved with this treasure, but we'll get there in a few minutes. First, we gotta wrap up this conspiracy. Among other theories, the Seagraves allege that Yamashita's gold definitely existed, but was already scooped up by the Americans, It helped that they had plenty of Japanese prisoners in their custody from who they could, shall we say, extract vital information. So by their estimate, all of it went into American coffers. And we were never told about that because the international community, by and large, tends to frown upon other countries stealing things that don't belong to them. But mostly, historians consider this a load of crap. Just like the regime of one little dictator named Ferdinand Emmanuel Adrian Marcos, otherwise known as this episode's villain. Because Americans love forcing their traditions on other people, the U.S. relinquished sovereignty over the Philippines on February 4th, 1946, which also meant the establishment of a shiny new government. Riding on the coattails of this new independence was the opportunistic, crafty, and kind of passive-aggressive, Ferdinand Marcos. He rose his way through the Senate like a weedy Emperor Palpatine, mostly coasting on his backstory, which is that he had fought most valiantly during World War II alongside the Americans. By his words, he was the most decorated war hero in all the Philippines. But mostly, historians consider this a load of crap. This, along with a populist platform, was enough to catapult Marcos to the presidency and onto two dubiously and very longly held terms. Around 1970, the Philippines was experiencing a radical youth movement from a more socialist climate. This, obviously, did not sit well with Marcos. Sadly, these weren't the chill Bernie Sanders kinds of socialists but more of the dyed red-in-the-wool Stalinist variety who quickly cannibalized and drowned out the former. Marcos initially didn't take them seriously, which only resulted in this rising movement gaining more traction and anger, with a threat of carrying out a people's revolution. The pushing point may have come when students pelted Marcos and his wife Amelda, who we will get to in a second, with stones, a coffin, and a stuffed alligator. I'm sure there's a metaphor there that I'm not understanding. Things escalated quickly from there on out, from student groups rushing the palace and chucking Molotov cocktails, storming the U.S. embassy, and just general angry pissed-off mayhem. Worse, the opposition parties and the media blamed Marcos entirely for letting things get out of control. Rumors began to spread of a coup and a planned assassination attempt, and this was enough to freak out even the U.S. government. But instead of Marcos trying to wager peace talks or negotiations, he decided instead to double down on what he deemed an insult to his leadership. On September 21st, 1972, he declared martial law and used the opportunity to install himself as the supreme dictator of the Philippines. What followed next was nearly two decades of mass incarceration of political dissidents and so-called enemies of the state, executions suppression of the media and rampant economic crises spurred on by the marcos family's favorite pastime of seizing people's financial assets wherever he deemed fit you see imelda marcos liked to live richly girl loved her some shoes by the 1980s, she had even purchased some of New York's most famous real estate, including the Crown Building, the Woolworth, and the Herald Center. The Empire State Building, which she could have easily afforded, she declined. According to Imelda, it was, quote-unquote, far too ostentatious. While the rest of the country suffered, Marcos lived like a king. And the U.S. turned a blind eye to all of this, mostly because of a certain tricky dick in power at the time, Richard Nixon. The two crooked leaders naturally supported each other. Almost 40 years later, and not much seems to have changed between the two nations. This tense political situation provided the backdrop for Rogelio Rojas and his quest for Yamashita's gold. Up until that point, Rojas and his friend, Albert Fuchigami, were just casual coin collectors and local treasure hunters. But Fuchigami's map, inherited from his father, had led both of the men to a fantastic trove of wealth. Or so they say. So, Rojas had the Golden Buddha, plus a bag of diamonds, which almost negated any reason to go back and excavate most of the tunnel loot. Whether or not Rojas came to this conclusion, we'll never know. About a month after he first discovered the treasure... In the middle of the night, there was a knock at his door. As you might expect, it was not good company, either. In marched none other than Ferdinand Marcos's palace guard, led by none other than Joe Oyahara, the gentleman whom Rojas had agreed to sell the Buddha. In the hands of the guard was a search warrant for illegal weaponry, signed by none other than Judge Pio Marcos, the very same man who had given Rojas his permit to dig for the treasure rogelio had been betrayed the guards seized everything his wife's coin collection her jewelry even his children's piggy banks but most of all the guards stole rojas's diamonds and the golden buddha statue knowing whom they were up against rojas and his brother nevertheless reported the incident to the police and then to judge pio marcos ferdinand's brother Now, this might sound like a royally ballsy thing for Rojas to do, but apparently he and Judge Pio went way back and had a trusting relationship. Until that point, anyway. That said, there was nothing Pio could do. His brother was about to install himself as the would-be prince of the Philippines. But Pio did grant Rojas a warning. He told the man that Ferdinand had put a target on him and his family's heads, and that it would be best to lay low while the situation blew over. So Marcos took his family and relocated to a more secluded location in the jungle. Now, all this took place during the earlier years of the Marcos dictatorship, and the tyrant still had a slew of enemies who were eager to use every opportunity to besmirch his name. That following April, members of the opposition got word of the Golden Buddha theft and decided to weaponize the story as an example of Marcos' rising kleptocracy. Because Marcos couldn't let a slight go unchallenged, he trotted out the Buddha statue for the press to view in a courtroom setting, and even invited Rojas to come testify that it was his, possibly an indication that he was willing to part with the treasure. Rojas, and presumably the rest of this audience right now, was suspicious, but the opposition party begged him to come to court, so he agreed. Right away, Rojas noticed there was something very different about this Buddha statue that was presented before him. For one, it was no longer made out of gold, but according to accounts, a gold-plated lead. And furthermore, it didn't have the removable head he claimed had concealed the stash of diamonds. He testified that this Buddha was, without a doubt, a total fake, a decoy. And then Rojas went into hiding again, empty-handed. Ferdinand Marcos was furious at being made out to be a fool so he sent his men to track down and capture Rojas who was thrown into a car and brought to a hotel to be tortured. Under duress Rojas signed a false confession stating he had lied about the Buddha's authenticity for financial gain but despite the torture Rogelio Rojas refused to give up the location of the gold known only to him and Albert Fuchigami whom he promised he would not betray. Now, my research doesn't really specify what happened to Mr. Fujigami, but it's more than likely he got the hell out of Dodge when the heat turned on. For that matter, I'm not entirely sure what happened to the workers who helped excavate the tunnel either. Yeah, as you can tell, a lot of this story does come from only one side, and you'll see why shortly. But when the two parties in question are a friendly treasure hunter prone to maybe exaggeration at the worst, and a tyrannical mass murderer, the press is more inclined to lean towards the testimony of the former. Fortune and glory may have eluded Rogelio Rojas for now, but fate was on his side because he survived his ordeal. And seeing as the media was already scrutinizing the debacle, Marcos reluctantly allowed Rojas to return to his family. Supposedly, he was eventually captured and brought back to the hotel room, but he escaped through the bathroom window, like someone trying to get out of a bad hookup. After this, he learned his lesson and finally relocated his family to somewhere beyond Ferdinand Marco's deadly reach, prioritizing the treasure he still had rather than the material treasure he lost. But this is not where Rojas' story ends. In fact, the fight had only just begun in earnest. Towards the beginning of the 1980s, Ferdinand Marcos began to suffer from failing health, possibly because being a royal jackamule tends to do that to you. And unlike the medical TV drama House, it actually did turn out to be lupus, which in all respect is a really tough chronic condition that affects 1.5 million decent people worldwide. But Marcos' downfall truly began with a man named Benigno Aquino, a son from a political dynasty and a staunch critic of Marcos during the earliest days of his presidency. Though Aquino was not a proclaimed communist, he supported the liberal or center-left party of the Philippines at the time. He landed on Marcos' shit list when he called out Imelda for a major vanity project. And dictators don't typically take kindly to having rivals insult their spouses. During a Liberal Party rally in 1971, two grenades were thrown at the stage, resulting in the deaths of many attendees. Though this was pinned on the communists, Aquino was no fool. Marcos loved blaming leftist groups. That's sort of how he crawled to power to begin with. In protest of the declaration of martial law, Aquino staged a hunger strike, which garnered him mass support and ended up with his ass getting thrown into jail. While in jail Aquino suffered a heart attack. Amelda Marcos, in a moment of genuine compassion, freed Aquino and permitted him travel to the United States for medical treatment. He remained in Boston, Massachusetts for the next three years, in hopes of laying low for a while and seeing how the situation back home would develop. He was probably hoping Marcos would bite the dust, but no such luck. Instead, the country began to buckle under the chaos of a dictator losing his grip on the nation and fearing that the philippines would spiral into chaos aquino elected to return home to try and unify the populace for the sake of peace on sunday august 21st 1983 aquino landed at in manila's international airport and was escorted to his car by his guards on the way a man identified as rolando Galman stepped out onto the tarmac and shot aquino in the head killing him instantly. In turn, Gallman was shot, effectively taking any knowledge, or even motive, to the grave. But it was quite clear who had ordered the hit, or so the historical consensus seems to believe. In any case, the plan backfired. Instead of putting down a political threat, Marcos had turned Benigno into a martyr. Aquino's wife, Corazon, was politically savvy in her own respects, and downright brilliant. She immediately stepped up to the plate and decried her husband's death as a prime example of the evils of the Marcos regime and its failure to maintain a peaceful Philippine government. The public rallied behind her and the opposition party. A snap election was held in 1986, and though Marcos tried to cheat his way into the polls, the people reacted, let's say, rather strongly. By which I mean, they joined forces with the military and quite literally chased Marcos and his wife out of the country. The Marcos couple proclaimed political asylum and settled in Hawaii. Thus, Corazon Aquino became the first female president of the Philippines. Among other honors, Aquino, who sadly passed away in 2009, has been called the mother of Asian democracy, as well as winning several peace prizes. Listeners should already know I'm a big fan of bloodless coups being led by strong women. So all around, she was a super cool lady. Not long after this, Ferdinand Marcos died in exile. And seeing as democracy had been restored to the Philippines, for the time being anyway, Rogelio Rojas decided, hey, now that that jerk's out of the way, it's time to get my booty back. In 1988 rojas formed the golden buddha corporation which was not a real company but scaling back the legalese a little it was a clever way for a wronged filipino man to sue the marcos family on american soil because rojas would have to take his case to hawaii his claim in brief was that marcos had illegally seized his treasure and he was owed a very pretty penny Rojas testified in court that the representative of one of the statue's prospective buyers had tested the gold for authenticity by coring out a small part of the artifact, which revealed that it was made out of solid 22-karat gold and definitely not plated lead. Another buyer tested the metal with nitric acid and deemed pretty much the same thing. The court case carried on into the 90s, but sadly Rojas passed away in 1993, leaving his eldest son Jose as the plaintiff. This complicated matters, as it meant that neither of the original parties involved were going to be able to offer a clear account for the events that transpired. For one, Rogelio Rojas's story was rather sensational, and the only Buddha statue that had ever been produced was clearly made out of lead and not gold. The Rojas testimony swore that the Marcos family still had the original item, the gold one anyway, and had secreted it away. And Imelda, of course, being the absolute worst, stuck to her story. The witness testimony didn't exactly help either. Reports from appraisers and smelters who had come over to the Marcos estate spoke of seeing a room stacked floor to wall with gold bars, presumably taken from the Yamashita hoard. But all this seems highly unlikely. Besides that, nobody quite knows what happened to those tunnels Rojas dynamited. There's no official account of anybody ever going back there to check them out. Furthermore, there were plenty of holes in Rojas's story. How had he compensated his excavation crew, and just whom had he sold these seven gold bars to in the first place? Had Rogelio spared their identities out of concern that Marcos might go after them? And what the hell ever happened to Albert Fuchigami, who just kind of suddenly drops out of the story? With each side calling the other a liar, the truth was far from being ascertained. Okay, but here's where things get really crazy, because Rogelio Rojas' family totally won the case. In 1996, the jury awarded Golden Buddha Court $22 billion in compensatory damages. That increased in interest to over $40 billion, which even after was still a chump change to Amelda. But this was a short-lived victory. The Hawaii Supreme Court reversed the judgment, citing insufficient evidence to support Rojas ever having discovered the gold bullion and Buddha statue. And this is really just a technicality. It's hard to reward someone based off of damages that cannot properly be measured in absence of there being the actual goal there to weigh and rate. The verdict did not take issue, however, with the fact that Rojas did perhaps discover a treasure hoard. And according to the Supreme Court of Hawaii, he did. As they tell it, There was sufficient evidence to support the jury's special finding that Ferdinand coveted the treasure that Rojas found. There was sufficient evidence to support the jury's determination that Rojas found the treasure pursuant to Philippine law. This effectively remanded the trial, which carried on into the first year of the new millennium, almost three years after the drama began. The long and the short of it is, after years of back and forth, the final judgment was that Marcos had violated Rogelio Rojas's human rights and was owed $6 million. And then, in a Relic the Lost Treasure podcast first, we actually get a judicial confirmation of a lost treasure. In 2006, the United States' Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal issued a very clear-cut judgment. The Yamashita treasure was discovered by Rojas and stolen from Rojas by Marcos's men. And yet, the so-called ending, if there really is one for Rogelio Rojas, is rather bittersweet. Though Golden Buddha Corp. was awarded a recalculated amount of $22 billion, it couldn't exactly be given over to them. When the Marcos family was chased out of the Philippines, their assets were tied up in the state, as well as the complicated aftermath of what to do with all of seized money. There really was no way to hand over the cash anymore. Meanwhile, back in the Philippines, the Baguio Regional Trial Court still actually had the only evidence in this whole damn story, the gold-plated Buddha statue that Rojas had called a forgery. The judge presiding over the case, Antonio Reyes, said, quote, The U.S. court's decision implies that the Golden Buddha existed. I don't know how that conclusion was arrived. In the end, the only thing Jose Rojas had to show for his father's pain and suffering was one relatively worthless lead statue. With nothing else to go on, he eventually testified in court that he strongly believed that his father was originally bribed by politicians to say that the Buddha was gold in order to stick it to Marcos. Alternatively, Rojas's lawyer said that Amelda had approached Jose to testify that the statue was lead and attempted to bribe him, presumably in hopes of saving face. So what we're really left with here is Schrödinger's lost treasure, the Amashda's gold that the Ninth Circuit says exists while the Philippine court does not. In 1993, while all of this was going on, Amelda Marcos decided to run her mouth yet again and admitted to the press that her husband had, in fact, come into possession of the Mashta treasure, though she was clever not to specify that it was Rohelia Rojas' portion of the hoard. She said that her husband had kept all this a secret because, quote, it was a quantity of gold that was so large that it would be embarrassing. She also said that Ferdinand had at one point traveled to the US to try and sell some of the gold bars. Now, I'm not saying that the widowed wife of a dictator should be discounted as a credible source, but there's more than a few holes in her story. Remember, this was a woman who could rock a pair of Jimmy Choo's, but wasn't exactly the most ethical Filipina in Luzon. Though Imelda said that her husband had sealed away some of the gold within the walls of their estate, the Aquino administration did everything in their power to search for any treasures that Marcos had sequestered away. They found none. By the way, Imelda Marcos is still alive, and is still one of the wealthiest women in the globe in part due to her assets, but mostly due to her offshore bank accounts, which she maintains under the pseudonym Jane Ryan. Surprised to see investigative journalism in a podcast about lost treasure? Anyways, we're coming to the end here. Though it's very late in the game to speculate what really happened to Imashda's gold, let's take a skeptical approach as we seek into our denouement. For one, Yamashita never claimed his own pile of loot. His name was just tagged onto the general plunder amassed by the Imperial Japanese. And it is technically possible that some of it may have been hidden away, as was the case with Rojas' alleged gold, but historians point out that would-be treasure hunters often overlook the intrinsic value of things like silverware or jewelry and smaller personal items that may have not necessarily been added to a giant stockpile a la the Cave of Wonders. These heirlooms may have simply vanished into the households or hands of families connected to those who had occupied the Philippines. They may have never thought twice about where exactly Grandpa had gotten that silver dinette set during the war. Other people, such as the Sea Graves, take a more conspiratorial and sensationalist approach, mostly to sell books. These theories involve the American army taking all the plunder and using it to fund their post-war efforts and other such dastardly deeds. And though I wouldn't put it past my country to do such a thing, as far as I can tell, no soldiers or veterans of World War II who had fought or been stationed in the Philippines at the time has ever mentioned moving precious gems and gold in secrecy back to the States. Face it, nobody is that patriotic. And if anybody knows anything about American soldiers is that they love telling a good story. Word would have gotten out eventually, especially now that so much time has passed. Occasionally treasure hunters and Yamashita's gold enthusiasts will claim to discover a chest of coins or some other small but interesting cache of loot, but there isn't much to show for it. Other unfortunate souls have accidentally gotten themselves blown up, trying to take back the vestiges of the war, not knowing they've activated unexploded artillery until it's too late. There's also the fact that, apparently, Treasure hunting is kind of a big thing in the Philippines, to begin with, and that tales of lost treasure are especially prevalent in Filipino folklore. As far back as the 16th century, Filipino adventurers have searched in vain for the buried treasure of the Chinese pirate Lima Hong, who was said to have hidden some booty in Pangasinan. Then there is the tale of the native revolutionary, Francisco Dagohoy, who fought against Spanish imperialism. He was said to have his own surplus of missing wealth, which included a legendary pendant that gave him plus five charisma, the power to jump across rivers and mountains, invisibility, and the ability to see in the dark. Wow, I have clearly been covering the wrong treasure for this episode. Then there was the Filipino-American War, which, as the name implies, was not the best time for our two countries' relationship. The treasure in question with that part of history concerns chests of silver dollars that were said to have been lost to the island shoals. Legends like these help cement the concept of the elusive treasure hunt in the Philippine consciousness. As recently as January of 2017, a dubious video of divers bringing up a booby-trapped and mud-caked chest of gold bars has surfaced on the internet and sparked talk on Reddit of a portion of Yamashita's gold being uncovered at last. But not much follow-up has been made after this video was released, so it's unlikely that this is nothing more than a very clever hoax. Still, finding treasure in watery caverns remains part of the Philippine zeitgeist, just ask Henry Rojas, one of Rogelio's still-living sons. Today, he runs the Rojas Museum near the Lord Grotto. He is proud of his father and his family's legacy. Whether or not the patriarch of the Rojas clan actually found a Buddha made of solid gold is largely insignificant in the grander scheme of things. What matters is that he gave a tyrant hell and gave the Philippines one hell of a tale a scrappy adventurer trying to take back valuable artifacts from a violent dictatorship, it's a story so tried and true that even without knowing the full extent of the drama, one might easily question whether or not it actually happened. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell, with support from listeners and fans Thank you. If you like this podcast and want to treasure map to my heart, and not a tunnel of skeletons, but also same thing, you can rate and review us on iTunes. It means a lot. You can tweet me funny things on Twitter at Lost treasure pod. You can also send me an email at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com if you have any corrections or questions. And next time, the stage is set for our two-part finale and one of Lost Treasure's heavy hitters. In this first half, we'll take a dark and twisted journey into Nazi occultism. Find out how their belief in ancient aliens, psychics, and lost cities helps fuel not only their racist agendas, but also the hunt to find one of the most legendary and coveted treasures in all of history. The adventure continues.